0: Welcome to Winning Healthcare Food Fights Without the Mess. I'm Hunter Schultz, and this is part two of the 2020 Healthcare Buyer's Guide. Today I'll explore accessing care and its focal point. You'll find most Americans are on the same page when it comes to quickly accessing care. We can all agree on that particular outcome. Again, it helps to understand the type of care we're talking about. If you get care right, the focus is on primary care. That's related to the focal point of care, which is your primary care physician. So many issues are handled in that space, we can't ignore its importance. We also have ready access to certain types of catastrophic care, too. No one is turned away in an emergency room unless you arrive seeking a systemic issue with acute symptoms. ERs handle trauma, acute pain, and other events requiring immediate care such as heart attacks, stroke, but not cancer treatments, which are definitely catastrophic, but not acute. They're most likely handled in the specialty space. What remains is paying for the care, and that's certainly a big factor. It's the fear of the unknown when it comes to the upper levels driving frustration and ultimately more people giving up. Let the government handle it. However, that's like threading a needle with a sledgehammer. You don't need that for primary care, period. And that's being proven every single day. We just need more of that solution. Ideally, we shouldn't think twice about contacting our physician if we don't feel well. I have a friend from Spain who loves his care. If he feels sick and that a visit with the doctor is warranted, he goes. There's no fear of a bill. Their system is designed that way. It's paid for by taxes, so it's not free either. The key attribute here is a lack of fear paying the bill. He's not confronted with how much will this cost? Even a simple doctor visit in the US can be subject to higher than expected charges. Hence, Spain has better health outcomes. They have less specialty and ER use too. They have lower overall health care costs. What's Spain doing differently? In 1986, the Ministry of Health decided to focus on primary care and started building primary care clinics around the country. By 2006, over 13,000 were built. The outcomes? Easy access to care in terms of logistics. One attribute of great health care is proximity to care. And it follows a logical path, too. The closer you are to care, the less time needed to receive it. Spaniards receive steps-away care. The clinics are in every town. Plus, there's no fear of, do I see a doctor or eat or pay the rent? However, there's been lots of changes since 1986, and we can agree on that too. Technology plays a role in steps-away care, and telemedicine is bridging an important logistics gap. Our newer communication technologies enables physicians to beam in via free or inexpensive video call services. Care is moving into the patient space, much like computers have over the same time frame. Same with many other technologies. In-home diagnostics is an example. A fingertip pulse oximeter to read blood oxygen levels. And heart rate. A blood pressure monitor a digital thermometer, even an otoscope for ear and nose exams for less than $150. So one can text or phone their doctor with those readouts, plus any other symptoms. And he or she will tell you if you need to go to the office or not. We're in the middle of a coronavirus outbreak. The best way to stop spreading it is reducing public exposure researched the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. Lots of hospital workers died because hospitals were a focal point for care. But there was little they could do at that time. A key point here is that the patient went to care. If Spain had to do it all over again, they would most likely do things a bit differently by taking advantage of new technologies. Most healthcare systems are paying attention, but for different reasons now. They know the writing's on the wall. Personalized medicine is here. And governments don't do personalization. I'll have more on that in part four. So please subscribe to be notified. We need to build that into our thinking when looking at a new system. How will the plan enable medicine to move closer to the patient and not the other way around? A pandemic is a good example It's far better to send a care team and medications to a home than bring them into a public waiting room. Using technology, doctors quickly determine what the next steps are, and without the patient going anywhere. And as scary as the coronaviruses are, a plain old flu outbreak is causing more deaths in the U.S. So even without a pandemic, moving care closer to the individual makes sense. If you study business disruption, there's a good clue for you. Blockbuster to Netflix, anyone? However, there's a big catch here. Primary care needs more time and less outside interference. It won't happen with today's system. So a key attribute to look for is ready access to your primary care doctor. No transactional fear either. There is more than one way to accomplish this, too. My bet is some of you are thinking that Spain's system is the answer. Well, it's one answer, and it's based on a lot of thinking before the advent of personalized medicine. But is it best for the future? Stick around and subscribe to the channel. You'll need more information to make a good decision. It's a fair point to mention how to pay for this type of access. From what I've seen and read, the competing points for enabling better access are split between Medicare and single-payer, a combination of public and private options, and free market solutions, too. The problem is, people tend to lump healthcare into one big blob. Transactional fear crosses all levels of care, when it shouldn't. So appropriate fear of a catastrophic care financial loss sways people's thinking that all care may be in the same space. It isn't, but that's what we face now. U.S. primary care status is catastrophic now, as Dr. Stephen Schimpf pointed out. So what, what happened to get us into this situation?
1: It, there's a lot of steps in there, but if you go back in time when various insurances first came about, including Medicare and including uh, commercial insurance uh, through your employer, primary care was not included. You paid for that yourself, and that was just an expectation. And then over time, um, I don't want to make it sound like I'm blaming the unions, but anyway, unions pressured for adding that in, and so it was, but of course, for everybody. and. Uh, Medicare was pressured pretty heavily, so they added it in. Uh, so then Medicare, uh, sorry, then the insurance is paying for it. But the insurers don't want to pay too much. Uh, they're in their own problems. Uh, they're trying to reduce costs. And so to them, how do you reduce costs? Well, one of the best ways to do it is to just say, I'm going to pay less. And so primary care gets the short end of the stick. The the, the Insurance system is weighted toward folks who do a procedure, whether that's surgery or cardiology or gastroenterology or whatever, and it's weighted against the the uh, physician who spends a lot of time with the patient, developing a long, a, a, you know, a very detailed history, understanding nuances and so on. So, what's happened then is that. The physician has to see more and more patients in order to make things work out.
0: America's 35 to 65 ratio of primary care physicians to specialists reflects our focus on specialty and catastrophic care, the two highest cost areas. The rest of the developed world, including Spain, is reversed at roughly 70-30, which helps lower their overall health care costs. Before Medicare and other government intrusions into care, we used to have a similar ratio. There were other factors, too. Third parties intruded into primary care. More rules followed. Something else happened, too. The way we trained physicians was altered. We used to have more primary care docs and residency programs. There are, there are a fixed number of residency slots. That was done back in the 1990s. Guess who controls that number? CMS, the good folks who bring you Medicare and Medicaid. Even with our increasing population, the number of slots stayed the same since the 90s. There is more to that story, including how residency slots are funded, which drives more young physicians to specialize. So, too, their medical school debt primary care reimbursement rates have lagged woefully behind specialty care. And no wonder they prefer specialization when they get out of residency. So how will any proposed plan increase the number of primary care doctors? How will slots be addressed? How can we encourage young physicians to move into primary care? Those are all good questions for our representatives and candidates. Another aspect to our primary care is that it's tied to coverage. Insurance co-pays and deductibles are the drivers for maintaining that dead end. It forces people into one-track thinking. I have to make this apply to my deductible. Yet the odds of ever reaching that deductible in any given year is less than 5%. Why? Well, in developed countries, including the U.S., roughly 80% of our populations use only primary care at any given year, including our entire lifetime. The House ultimately wins, just like Vegas. It's a good business model, don't you think? The U.S. system currently favors the high-cost, upper-two-tiers, so we need to address better access to primary care for all. A one-size-fits-all sledgehammer payment solution doesn't make any sense either. Most Americans can easily handle their primary care with the help of their doctor. There's no need for anyone else in that relationship, if it's direct. However, there's a significant number of people who are not able to handle their care. Some are homeless and have no bank account for even a simple payment. There are others who may be unemployed or underemployed, too. They need a helping hand. So there's a need for some sort of public assistance. But that still doesn't mean government need be involved, other than providing a payment mechanism like food stamps. If one has the blinders on with our current system, the mere thought of this might be quite alarming, sort of like having the Pentagon auditing themselves. Rightly so. Most Americans don't trust government programs to keep within a budget, and it's a well-founded fear of the known unknown. How much will it cost? However, we're the most generous and giving country on the planet. If we had a better known known in terms of what that assistance would cost, we'd be more likely to provide it. Remember that 300 billion that I mentioned in part 1, 304 billion for 329 million Americans getting great health care, great primary care, the kind that prevents problems and more expensive specialist and catastrophic care. It's a far easier sell for that kind of program to the American public. Far easier than some multi-trillion dollar plan. Then there's some who simply don't have the mental capabilities stemming from substance abuse to lack of mental development and other reasons. They're going to need a lot of external help too a public option, as it were. But still, all would have primary care when they need it. Of course, that 304000000000 billion doesn't pay for everything, so people will need a stop-loss mechanism. It wouldn't be the same for everyone either. People's needs are different, based on a lot of factors, like those living in rural areas. They may need air medical transport help, a friend of mine flies for Air EVAC Life Team. Their, year, their yearly membership is $85 for a family, and with no further out of pocket expense for flights. Those surprise huge flight bills are no longer a worry. The financial risk is capped, becomes a known known. Yes, some will need financial assistance with that. But not everyone. Using HSAs to help pay, facilitate payment, with pre-tax dollars or government credits, makes it far easier too. Again, instead of using a sledgehammer to fix healthcare, let's consider using a variety of tools. When we need specialty care, HSAs provide an excellent mechanism for many people, but not all. Again, with the help of their primary care physician, they can determine their risk levels based on health history, current tests, things like that. From there, the amount of cash in their HSAs should be adjusted. More specialists are opting out of the current system and providing far better care at a lower cost now. But what about high-end specialty care and catastrophic care? Accessing that shouldn't be complicated. Paying for that care is where you bring in some form of coverage. Now, this is where things start to resonate with everyone. Public and private options make some sense here. Remember, some people have no chance of dealing with even simple health care decisions and care. They'll need a lot of assistance. Means-based testing for assistance is done with food, housing, and other things. It can be the same for health care services, too. Government can provide a role for being the payer of last resort, much like other catastrophic events. No pre-existing condition denials, no pre-authorizations, etc. Politically, that's a much easier selling proposition because most of our care would be focused on primary care, where it should be just like the rest of the world. Yes, insurance companies can be required to accept everyone regardless of their status. However, the trade-off for them is they have far less primary care processes to deal with as it's no longer their focus. They can either accept and embrace these changes or get out. A free market means others would step in and step up. If they know there's a government backstop For those huge super-users not handled with primary care, they're likely to stick around, just like car and homeowner insurance underwriters. There's more to coverage, but this ought to be enough to provide food for thought and be open-minded about other possibilities. There's one critical element missing in our current system. And maybe the single most important question to ask about any new plan, who's the focal point for care? We've lost that over the last 50 years or so. Listen to Dr. Stephen Schimpf address that issue.
1: Sometimes you do need to go see the specialist, maybe even more than one specialist, and that care needs to get be coordinated. Somebody has to be the quarterback, if you will. And that should be the primary care doc. Today, that's just not the case. But I'll just give you my own example. Uh, I get intermittent atrial fibrillation, and my doc has been perfectly capable of taking care of it. But it was coming on a little bit more often, and he said, you know, I'd just like to have you see the cardiologist one time and see what he thinks. So I said, okay, fine. So he said, uh, uh uh, hang on, I'll call him. So he didn't give me the phone number and say, here, you make your own appointment.
0: Because if I
1: had, it would have been six weeks off probably. So he called up and he said to his friend, the cardiologist, listen, I got a patient here. His name is Steve Schimpf and he's got X, Y, Z. And I-, I wonder if you can get him in the next few days. A um, little bit of a pause. And the answer is, how about Tuesday at 3? <laughs> you know, It makes a difference because that cardiologist knows that he gets all of his business, pretty much all of it, from primary care docs, including this one. And so if his his primary care friend calls up and says, would you get my patient in soon? He'll do it because he wants to keep getting patients in. (laughs) It's simple.
0: People simply don't know, and it's been a slow decline over many decades. Most people have multiple points of primary care. They go to small clinics. They use ZocDoc. And if they're a woman, they have an OBJYN doing primary care too. According to a study of more than 25,000 specialist visits, over 46% were for routine follow-up and preventative care. These are far better handled by primary care. Specialists do it because they know the system is broken and they care about their patients. However, because they lack time too, they're not able to see the whole patient and connect all their medical dots, let alone think about them when they're not there. They're pushing back a bit now and they're asking, who's your primary care doctor? Why? Well, they know that communication is the root of most malpractice claims. They're being put into a precarious situation by patients asking them to handle routine issues. People are seeing multiple caregivers, but no one is truly listening, thinking, and connecting all their medical dots. They're dealing with the medical silo effect. There's a lot of valuable patient information and insights that are sitting in multiple places but remain disconnected. Patients started noticing the time factor too. No one is listening to me is a common refrain. They know there's a problem. Most people now consult the ever popular Dr. Google in hopes of finding, figuring out their situation. These are symptoms of America's catastrophic primary care status worthy of some pointed questions too. How will your plan enable my doctor to quarterback my care, to connect to all my medical dots? And please be specific. <laughs> that ought to be a good YouTube moment. Here's Dr. Paul Thomas of Plum Health in Detroit putting the exclamation mark on this vital point. And who's the focal point for care, the continuity of care? And, mm-hmm. and So what, are they, what else are they missing by not having you as, a, as a, their primary care physician? Well, I think it just comes down to a relationship and the continuity of care, like you mentioned, and having a trusted physician in your back pocket. You know, you may need to come in once or twice a year for your annual physical or a cough or cold but you know if something goes wrong you cut yourself or there's a more major concern you would like to have a doctor who knows your history really well mm-hmm. who can use all that information all that past knowledge to give
1: you the best care going forward a lot of people are going to the urgent care in their hour of greatest need and seeing a pa or an np or a doctor
0: hopefully that they've never seen before right so in, in your hour of greatest need, you're going to someone you've never met before and hoping that they'll give you the best care possible. In the next two parts, I'll explore more about what to look for in any new plan. Knowing what great care is will help you make better choices come November. Again, I've included many reference links in the description. If you want to keep up to date with healthcare, please click subscribe. And thanks again for joining me, and please do share your thoughts below. Until next time, there you are.